have in my notes here to say something about the 49ers today, but uh, I'll just skip over that. So. Anyway, I'm sorry I brought it up. That's, uh, yes. All right, so we're going into Romans. As is mentioned um, already, uh, this, this could be a very tough, or maybe someone, some would say it's a, it's a dark topic or text. This is probably a text that more than any other text in our, our Bibles will, will turn people away from following the Christian faith. And, um, and so that being said, um, what I ask, I ask a few things of you today. Um, first, first off, uh, this is, I, I believe this is a difficult text for most all of us um, because this issue of, uh, and we're going to talk about sexuality. We're going to talk about homosexuality as well. This is one where I think maybe we'll be um, in our seats twisting a little bit and, and things like that, and that's, that's okay. And the reason why I think it's tough is because as followers of Jesus, we desperately know that we're called to love people. Um, and we don't really get to discriminate on who we love. Jesus says, love your neighbor. Um, love your neighbors as yourself. Um, we also talked about in our membership class this morning, as followers of Jesus, our responsibility is not to judge the world around us because the world around us is living to a, a set of values and standards that is not defined by the biblical tenets in which we follow. So in, in Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, don't judge those outside the church. As, as followers of Jesus, we actually are to judge one another inside the church. Anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus and is walking in, in a, any sin, whatever the sin might be, we're called as brothers and sisters in Jesus to, to raise each other up and to challenge each other in that. But looking outwardly, we're not called to judge the world around us because they're not acting like followers of Jesus because they're not followers of Jesus. And so the tension that we can kind of feel is we want to love, but then we also um, define what love looks like um, differently. And so some would say that love means acceptance um, and affirmation of certain lifestyles. And others would say love is the truth and sharing the truth. And sometimes in sharing the truth, it can be shared in an unloving way. And so these are the tensions in which we find ourselves this morning as we come to this text. Honestly, it's not a difficult text in the sense that it's unclear. This text, as well as all of scripture, is very clear on this issue. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. It's more of a, of a, a sensitive issue because of the culture in which we live in today. One of the beauties about what um, we do here is we, we uh, give ourselves to a, a style of preaching that's called expository preaching, meaning we take books of the Bible and we work through them. This is really good, but it also means that we have to come to things that are not easy to, to cover, and so we are at one of those texts today. So anyway, with that all being said, um, the last thing I'll say before we really jump into this is I'm going to use the word and I'll say the word sex and sexuality and things like that more than I'm comfortable doing and probably more than you're comfortable hearing me say, which is why Andy gave that, um, that warning beforehand. Um, but what we have to remember in all of this, and, and me and Julie, whenever we do premarital counseling, we come to the section where we talk about marital intimacy and we, 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 we kind of talk about the elephant in the room, that sometimes it's hard to talk about this, but we can't forget 
that um, this is part of God's design, that God is the one that designed um, human beings. He designed intimacy among human beings, and so we don't have to be embarrassed about the things in which God has, has designed. That all being said, it's still kind of hard in some context, but hey, here we are. So let's just jump right in. If you have your notes page, you'll see the title of the, the sermon, and oh, I will say this, please stay till the end. I'll try to be short, but you know, if you want to just get up and leave, just please stay to the end. Uh, you can't really, yeah, just, you know what I'm saying? All right. So that being said, um, we're talking about the three dimensions of depravity. So what do we mean by depravity? It's important that we kind of define some terms. Um, so with that being said, what are the terms? Here's depravity. Depravity is, we're defining as the corruption of human nature due to what is known as original sin. Original sin. Depravity means the, the corruption of human nature due to original sin. Okay, good. So what's original sin? Well, what does that mean? Um, we have a lot of new believers here. We have a lot of people that are still not following Christ. And we have a lot of people that may just not know some of these terms. So let me define original sin. Original sin is simple in the sense that it's the doctrine or the teaching that everyone is born sinful. This has been a teaching within the church that is as old as the church is. Um, and, and there are over a hundred scriptures that support this. I'm just giving you three here that support the doctrine of the teaching of original sin. Um, and it's this, Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Psalm 51, 5 Old Testament says, behold, I was brought forth from, or brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And then 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the, the truth is not in us. So original sin, it's the teaching within the church that everyone is, is sinful. So um, with that, with that, let's, let's kind of jump in. We're in this series in Romans, and, and last week we talked about how God has made known to all people um, his, his, through his creation, he has made known to all people that he exists, that we have the image of God within us, that he has implanted eternity within, within our hearts. And because of that, no one is without excuse. There's no one that can say, I didn't know, because God has implanted this truth within them. However, as we know, there, there are people that say, I don't know. And, and why is that? Well, it's because we suppress, as people, we have this tendency to suppress the truth, like it says in, in, in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1. We suppress the truth. This is like we take the beach ball and we try to hold it underneath the water. That's suppressing the truth. And the reason we do that is because we live in ungodly which is broken relationship with God and, un and, and unrighteousness, which is broken relationships with one another. Therefore, we suppress the truth. Now, when the truth of God is suppressed, and the reason it's suppressed is because um, it confronts some of the ways that people want to live and believe. People like to think oftentimes that the God in which they worship would not have any opinions different than their own. And so um, it makes them uncomfortable when they think that something that they hold dear is different than what God says is true, then they would therefore suppress that truth and not 
step up to its direction, the direction of God. So in this case, it says they suppressed this truth, and in so doing, they became fools. So we now get to see what is the, what is the, the consequence or the progression of the chain of consequences that come because humanity suppresses the truth of God. What, what are those things? Well, we see three dimensions of this depravity as we, as we come to um, our text today. And let's read through this. We'll, we'll back up a couple verses. This is in verse 21. Verse 21 says this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and likewise men gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error and since they did not see fit to acknowledge god god gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil covetousness malice They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's a list. Verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who who practice them. All right. They give approval to those who practice them. All right, so let's look at the first of the three dimensions of, of depravity that we see here. The first one, verses 24 through 27, is sexual depravity. That's what we see as the consequence of the suppression of God's truth. Um, now, in verse 24, let's, let's look at verse 24 specifically. It says this, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they changed the truth about God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So here, first off, um, even though kind of maybe the main topic that we're going to deal with today is, is homosexuality, what's important to note here is that verse 24 is pointing towards heterosex, heterosexual immorality. And, and oftentimes it's easy to skip over verse 24 and just jump to verse 26 and following. So what I want to do here, though, is to, just to point out that, that heterosexual impurity is every bit as shameful to our Creator as any sin, that we can forget that and, and focus elsewhere. But in, in our culture today, we have to realize that, that, that within um, the, the confines of normal, 
in our culture, it is um, absolutely counter um, biblical in the way that people go about the, 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 the sexual revolution, I should say. So what I wanted to do for just a moment is I, I pulled up um, some of the, some secular, some secular non-Christian research that points out the, 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 the sexual depravity as, as it relates to heterosexual um, immorality or impurity. So anyway, this will make sense in just a minute. So in, in Science Magazine, it's a secular magazine, um, it was reported in an article that is entitled the, the Problem with Promiscuity. Okay, so promiscuity is what we're talking about. Um, so they did a study of white blood cell counts of monkeys in zoos all over the entire world. They didn't give the number of how many monkeys, but they did give some percentages. And they said 41% of all of the monkeys in which they, in which they um, tested for the white blood cell count, 41% of them were, um, they were living in, um, uh, they had multiple partners, put it this way. These monkeys did. They lived in an environment where they had multiple partners. And these are female monkeys that they're doing the tests on. Um, and so that meant 59% of the ones that they tested were in, a, in more of a cage setting where they had one monogamous partner. Interesting thing here is what they concluded in this study is that 100% of the 41%, so 100% of the, those that lived in a, a, a prom, promiscuous um, animal kingdom, put it that way, those, those 100% of that 41% had a much higher white blood cell count, which means that their bodies are fighting much more aggressively disease, infection, um, in comparison to the 59% who, which were much lower white blood cell counts because their immune systems weren't having to work overtime. Okay, so that's monkeys. All right, now let's, let's jump to humans. Um, in, in the medical journal Everyday Health, Dr. Brad Isles, I think that's how you say his name. He, he, he wrote an article that said, can promiscuity threaten your longevity? The short answer, he says, is yes. Having a large number of sexual partners has been linked to poor sexual health and decreased longevity. Why, he says. The more partners you have, the greater your risk of sexually transmitted diseases, such as HIV, AIDS, and other life-threatening conditions like prostate cancer, cervical cancer, and oral cancer. Promiscuity is one example of a class, according to, according to um, Lee Fitzgerald, PhD assistant professor of psychology at Eastern Connecticut State University, for those of you who are taking notes. Um, promiscuity is one example of a class of high-risk behaviors. It's compared to, according to this doctor, it's a compared to and may coincide with behaviors such as heavy drinking, gambling, and other thrill-seeking behaviors like driving too fast. So um, in the same article, um, he states that physical abuse research shows that couples who are in long-term committed relationships in a monogamous way are much less likely to suffer domestic violence. Okay, so there's, there's a little bit there. And talking about promiscuity, one of the things that I hear come up um, in, in, well, I was going to say with my coworkers, this is before I was pastoring a church, my coworkers in the secular world, one of the things that I would hear come up um, with my coworkers is, you know, um, I, I, have to, I have to sleep around because, you know, I need to find out if I'm compatible with so-and-so. And, you know, the obvious answer to that, well, is 
you're a boy, she's a girl, you're compatible. That's kind of the smart aleck response to, to that. And in our world today, you think, well, no, maybe that's not the case. But the reality is what that points out when someone says, well, I need to sleep around to, to make sure I'm compatible with the person um, in, a, in a sexual sense, that really points out a worldview that we need to pause and look at. Because this promiscuous worldview that our culture just thinks is normal um, shows what their view of relationships are all about. If I've got to sleep around to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm compatible with somebody else, what is that saying? I'm looking for what satisfies me. And from a biblical worldview, what is love? Love isn't primarily about serving me. Love is primarily about serving the other. Love is primarily about spouse, especially as it relates to, especially relates to this area of a relationship where most couples go south in this area of their marriages is when they are seeking their own, their own satisfaction and fulfillment and neglecting or putting in second place their spouses. And so anyway, it's kind of this backwards ethic that we see in culture today. Um, and that's understandable because the world that we live in doesn't hold to a biblical narrative, but we do. And we need to understand that as we look in this, this world. So, so promiscuity is one area where in the heterosexual world, especially, um, things can go awry. Um, another area of the heterosexual impurity that Paul would certainly be talking about if he was writing in today's culture with such things as the internet, he would talk about pornography. Pornography is, um, is such a big issue in in um, homes today, in all homes. Um, first off, some of the problems with pornography, again, this is secular research, not Christian research, although I think Christian research would agree with this. Um, multiple studies on pornography and its effects on relationships. It's really quiet in here. <laughs> That's okay, we'll keep going. One of the devastating effects, quote unquote, of pornography and other sexually explicit material is that it sabotages the ability to enjoy normal sex, they say. This can lead to a serious, serious marital issues. And according to Psychology Today, pornography lowers commitment and can lead to infidelity. Research also shows that people who didn't view any pornography had levels of negative had lower levels of negative communication and were more committed to the relationships and they had higher marital sexual satisfaction. So pornography, it, it harms relationships. See this a lot. Another way that it's harmful, pornography, is it's addictive. Um, I, when I was a youth pastor, I used to go around, this is a fun job, I used to go around to high schools and talk about abstinence as well as um, the effects of pornography. And really fun, in public schools, not Christians, in public schools. So you can imagine some of the audiences that you'd have to go in and see. And, and this is like 10 years ago, so they probably don't let that um, program into schools anymore these days. But anyway, you could do this back then, and it was amazing to me how normalized pornography was amongst, amongst um, middle school and high schoolers. As if, you know, at least when, when I was younger, there was a little bit of um, shame attached to, to this. And so it wasn't talked about so freely, but anymore it's like, yeah, it's no big deal. It's not a problem at all. But the reality is there are these negative effects and, and it's addictive. It's scientifically proven that um, during the, the visual stimulation of viewing pornography, your brain dumps dopamine into the system, the feel-good chemical, which creates um, the same kind of reaction that heroin or phenylalanine or, or any of these other, other um, opioids would cause in a person's brain. And so with continued experience, 
exposure, what that does is it creates an addictive behavior within a person. And that addictive behavior, like any other addictive behavior, becomes very, very destructive in, in relationships as well as in a number of other things, which leads to this third thing here. Another way that pornography is difficult is it gives unrealistic expectations. I see this um, a lot in different counseling situations where someone has been so shaped, and a lot of times we think it's only men that are mostly shaped by this, but the viewing of pornography is, it's more men than women, but it's surprising how those numbers are starting to equal themselves out. But reality is that it gives an unreal, unrealistic expectation of what this type of relationship is. When, when people look at and view this, especially as they're young, they are being taught in their minds like this is the way things should be. And so then when they get married, they have all of these built-up expectations for their spouse. And again, it kind of slips into that, this area is about serving me, not me serving them. And so it really causes a lot of marital tension. And to the point where um, Julie and I had a dear friend um, that we grew up with that um, had a, had a uh, husband that she married and uh, he was addicted to this and he had unrealistic expectations. And because she wouldn't live up to this, he would come home from work, shut himself in a room, view his, his pornography and um, did not engage with her at all ended up in a, in a divorce, and it was just a really hard situation. But these unrealistic expectations lead into marital situations that cause a lot of struggle and strife down the road. Um, and so, and then the last one I'll mention, there's actually quite a few more, and I've, I'll just go on, but the last one I'll mention is just the, the unhealthy, and this goes into the last one, the unhealthy nature of, of sex education for our young kids. Um, it's especially important, especially important for us w- parents right now when our kids have phones and they have tablets. Um, what used to take so much work to access as far as porno- pornographic images now is a blip. And there's entire industries that are built around trying to entrap our kids because guess what? It's an industry. They're not trying to fill us or our kids with healthy, natural education as it relates to this. No, they want money. It's a, it's a money-making industry. And for many years, I don't know if it still is, many years, it was the number one money-making industry in our country, not, a, not let alone around the world. And so for us as parents, um, it says here that 94% of children, 94% of children are exposed to pornography before the age of 11. 11. of them say that they believe what they saw was a realistic depiction of sexual relationships. So for us as parents, we have to be vigilant at um, keeping our eye on, being intrusive into our kids' lives, and instilling whatever kind of um, guards that we can in order to protect their hearts, to protect their minds from this type of, of hurtful content that will affect the rest of their lives and all of their relationships, um, let alone their faith, their faith. So, um, okay. A few more things, negative effects of heterosexual impurity. We have things like STDs, I already mentioned that. And also just mentioned abortion. Over 90% of abortions are, are uh, perpetrated by single women. It's over 700 a year, or 700,000 per year um, of, of abortions that take place, and those abortions are taking place because of 
promiscuity because of an accepted practice. And so it's become so normalized that um, the, the extinction of the murder of the most vulnerable of our society, which are unborn children, has is, is become normalized. And it's all due, primarily due to the, the, um, uh, the, the promiscuity and the rampant sexuality of, of the culture in which we live in. So um, we can't get away from this. This is the culture in which we live in, and it's imperative that we understand this culture from a biblical lens. So that's verse 24. That's dealing with heterosexual impurity. Let's now look at homosexual um, impurity as we go to verses 26 and 27. It says this. All right. For this reason, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. I want to pause just for a moment, a bit of a story time. When I was in seminary, I had the opportunity to study in Israel for three weeks and kind of an intensive course and lots of good memories from my time in Israel. One of my favorite that I'm going to mention this morning was um, when we were at the sea, on the Sea of Galilee, we actually went out on a boat, you know, the, the, the place in which Jesus calmed the stormy seas where he walked on water, all these miracles around uh, the, the, the Sea of Galilee um, took place. Um, one of my profs, even uh, during the time we were out there on the boat for, uh, I was almost half of a day, he taught one of our courses from the boat. Uh, just special, special time. So that was good. We got done. We decided to go to the shore. It was dinner time. And we went to this little restaurant that was right on the Sea of Galilee. And we go in there, sit down, and look at the menu. And I, I decide at this point in time that um, I always like to eat the cultural food when I'm in different places. And so I chose tilapia, I think is what it's called. It's a, it's a fish. It's the number one harvested fish out of the Sea of Galilee. So, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to order tilapia. And so I order this thing, and we go on with our conversation. And this young Israeli uh, server comes out and he puts my, my dish down in front of me and I gasp. I'm like, ah, <laughs> just in shock and surprise. And as I, I look at this, um, I look down and there's a fish. It, it looks kind of like a perch. It's almost the size of a football, but it's flat-ish. And it's laying there and it's been seared on its, on its body. You could tell it's blackened but its mouth is moving and its eye is moving around. And so I'm shocked. And I, and I look, I look at my server and I'm like, what is this? And, and he looks very soberly at me and he says, sir, it is a fish. <laughs> of course, that's not the question. I, I was not asking if it's a fish, I was asking, why is it wanting to have a conversation with me? That was kind of the question. But what he said there was, was, was profound in the sense of this, as we come to this topic today, as it relates to, let's just talk about homosexuality. Sometimes we just need to hear the way things are. We just need to hear a fish is a fish. And I, I say that because it's important to note that we need to hear clearly the, the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin. It teaches that. 
Um, there are many, there are many today resources that will try to go around and reinterpret the Bible to say, um, no, this is a cultural problem, this, this or that or this or that. And uh, sadly, uh, the, the people that make those same, those same um, comparisons are also oftentimes the people that throw out all the areas of the Bible that they disagree with to justify their position. You can't do a, a true um, read of Scripture, Old and New Testament, and not see that um, a fish is a fish and that homosexuality is a sin. And, and so it's important for us to hear that. Um, because again, as I mentioned earlier, many people stay away from Christianity, they stay away from um, the Bible because it's offensive, because they assume that if there is a God in their opinion, he certainly wouldn't have any views that would upset my comforts. He certainly wouldn't have any views that are different than the culture in which I live in. But scripture teaches this very clearly. Now, that all being said, um, it seems as if Paul here is and some would say, one of my commenters say, why, why is he picking on homosexuals? He seems to point this out. And, and, and also heterosexual impurity. Why is he picking? There's a lot of different areas of suppression of truth that he could have used as examples. Why is he using this example? Great question. There are, there are really two very clear passages in our Bibles that, that clearly show sin and its consequences. Those two passages, one is, is Genesis 1 through 3, and the other one is Romans chapter 1. Now, why this is important is this. Let's just look, for example. Go to Genesis 1, okay? You don't have to, you don't, don't turn there. I'll just kind of tell you. We won't have time. And let, we could take more time, but I'm guessing you probably don't want to. Let me just kind of summarize it. Genesis 1, um, God in his, in, his, in his sovereign, caring, loving nature creates. He creates everything in which we know and have today. The beauty that we have today, he creates it. He integrates it all. As we talked about last week, it all is in perfect balance. That's God's design. So in chapters one and two, you've got this beautiful picture of him doing this, of him creating. And when he creates, what does he do? He says, it is good. So this blissful state of Genesis 1 and 2, but then you flip the page and you come to chapter 3 and boom, you see what we know as the fall of man, which is the entrance of original sin. Perfect 1 and 2, everything's blissful. You have man and, wooden that are man and women that are naked in the garden and they're unashamed, walking with God. Things are perfect as God designed them to be and as things will be again one day in the future. But they are that way and then boom, fall of man. Now keep that in mind for just a moment. Now let's jump to, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we see Paul. He, he talks about how he's, he's a servant of Christ Jesus, how he's come to show that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only, the only antidote to humanity's problem. And he says something like this. In verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I'm just an awesome statement. For the righteous, they will live by faith. Oh, don't you feel good? Then verse 18, and the wrath of God, he says, and the wrath of God is being revealed. It's being poured out from heaven against all forms of ungodliness, broken relationship with him, all forms of unrighteousness. Why? Because 
people, although they know the truth because it's been implanted in their DNA because people are made in the image of God, they suppress that beauty. So we've got these two pictures. Things are great, but then things go south really fast, really abruptly. And I don't know, I can't get into Paul's mind, but I have to be thinking, he's thinking back to God's original design, his creative, beautiful intent for humanity to to live in perfect relationship, beautiful, intimate relationship. It's so much so that people can be naked and not ashamed. I can't imagine that, but that's the way it was. And they're walking and talking with God. And then look at the way things are today. Everything that is black is now white, and white is now black. There is no black and white. Things are gray. Things, and so Paul looks at this, and so as he brings up and he points out the, the, the depravity that we find, especially as it relates to sexuality, he, I got to think he's thinking back to Genesis 3 and pointing to the fact that it's funny today that a fish no longer is a fish. Sin no longer is sin. But Paul says it is. Because what's happened, what happened back in the fall of man when original sin entered the world was that God had his design, but humanity, thanks to Satan's influence, chose a different way. They chose to believe in a lie. Even though that lie was 99% true, they chose to believe in that. They chose not to believe in, in God's word, God's loving, creative intent, and they chose to do it their own way. Therefore enters sin into the, the beautiful story that God has created for us. And, and so it is today as we see this progression of, this progression of rampant, no holds barred, everything goes okay, and if you don't think it's okay, you're intolerant kind of world that we live in today. And it makes it really hard. It makes it really hard on, on, on everybody, I think. It really does. So as we, as we look at this, um, we see that if, if people suppress the truth of God and the natural way in which that he has designed it in the order of his creation, this just leads down this road of, as Paul points out here, of sexual depravity. And then he, and then he goes on from sexual depravity to, to mental depravity, the, the, the corruption of the mind. Look at verse 28 and following. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God and give and God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil covetousness malice they are full of envy they are full of murder they are full of strife and deceit and maliciousness they are gossips they are slanders, they're haters of God, they're insolent, they're haughty, they're boastful, they're inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. So Paul here, he's saying that basically God gives them what they are asking for. This is what he does. They have rejected him, they've suppressed the truth, they have a debased mind, and a debased mind simply means a rejected mind. Humanity has literally rejected God. And so what does God do? God rejected their mental attitude. He gave them what they wanted. And, and it, it's really frustrating. You hear people talk about how, you know, God is, if God is loving, how could he allow bad things to happen to good people? How could he allow things? But when we see it here, as a, as a loving father, I think 
I think if, if I have the type of control that God would have, all powerfulness, I would choose to force people to do exactly what I say and to believe exactly what I tell them to believe. That's not a loving thing to do. It's not what God does here. God instead gives them what they're asking for. He doesn't force them. And he, he turns them over to what they want, what they ask for. And then he moves on to verse 29, which we see there, that the, the, the manner of which all of this unrighteousness manifests itself, which then leads to the third area of, of depravity, verse 32, we'll just call this ultimate depravity. We've got sexual depravity that's played out in both heterosexual and homosexual impurity, goes to mental depravity where people reject their minds, their minds become rejected of all things God, and then it comes to ultimate depravity. So what verse 32 tells us, um, this really gives us the, 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 the ultimate dimension of the sinful mind. Um, what this does is it, it really kind of neatly frames what is a horrible, terrible, hurtful picture. They Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them themselves, but give approval to all of them who practice those things. So this progression that we're seeing in this passage, this, this three-tiered level of depravity, um, really it, it reaches its, its bottom rung of depravity when it gets to a, a point where humanity affirms or heartily, heartily applauds those who give themselves into sin. To delight in those who do evil is by far one of the surest ways to become the most degraded of or to live at the bottom rung of depravity. One of the commentators said it like this. He said that the supreme horrors of the Roman Colosseum point this out. He says, those that are in the, in the Colosseum creating the torture and the mayhem to other people or to animals, they're guilty. They're supremely guilty. But those watching for enjoyment and applauding from the stands were perhaps even more wretched than those that were per perpetrating the acts within the, 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 the Colosseum. I think we see this today. We see this today where the way, if the, the most loving thing you could do is affirm and accept everything and, and everybody and everything is, everything is going to be okay. It doesn't, matter what, it doesn't matter what those religious nutcases think or those, those Bible-believing Christians think. Um, we're just going to applaud it. And what's even more sad is that so many churches, and I say that pretty loosely today, are deciding to to disassociate themselves with certain parts of the Christian faith that they deem too offensive for the culture. And in so doing, they're just stepping in and engaging in the depravity by not doing what God calls us to do, which is the most loving thing, which is to share truth. Not to share it in such a way as to, to hold them to a point of accountability like we would hold one another inside the walls of a church. No. But we are to proclaim truth as lovingly as we possibly can. But our society doesn't get this. 
Our, our society continues to just spiral downwards to suppress truth. No one seems to be able to say that enough is enough. It's gone, it's gone too far. No one seems to want to put a stop on, at least very few, on, on the rampant use of pornography. It's very rarely even talked about. Um, our schools today, what they're teaching um, in our growth group, Jennifer Withy, who is an advocate for the, the safety of children in the classroom as it relates to issues of, of sexuality, she stands up and uh, stands up for young kids. But what's being taught to, to children in kindergarten and first grade are things that you wouldn't even have dreamed to say out loud in high school, and I can't say from the pulpit, but that's just being dumped out there in our, in our society today. Um, we can go on and on. I can mention a lot of other things of the depravity, but the reality is when it comes to it, what do we do? I mean, what do we do? This stuff can make us mad. A lot of us can sit back and watch our favorite news network and just think this world literally is going to hell in a handbasket. We can look at those people out there in the world that manifest some of these behaviors that, that are here, and we can think that they're the problem. That's not the biblical perspective. That's just simply a symptom of the real problem, the depravity of mankind. That's simply a symptom of what, is, what affirms our call as people of God in this world, which is to be vessels of love and truth, to find ways to engage in real relationships with people such that we can have real conversations about such issues um, in which we can share a difference of opinion and not profess my truth, profess God's truth. Um, so what do we do? There's just a few, few th different things I'll, uh, for application points. Um, and the first application point here is, what do you do with this? I would just say, affirm my love for God's design, God's creative intent, the way God did things and the beauty of it, the way that he designed men and women. And it's okay. It's okay to, to stand for that. I know that it's not popular today, but it's okay to stand for that. Not smugly and arrogantly as if we don't care about anybody else who thinks differently than us, but genuinely because our God is perfect in how he is, how he is designed mankind. I want to read. Um, this is awesome. Uh, it's a little, basically it's a rewriting of Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32, but it's written in a redeemed way, um, a way that affirms God's design. And it, it says this. This is by uh, Kent Hughes. He says, Therefore, God gave them up in their hearts to self-control and purity, that their bodies might be honored among them. For they kept and they cherished the truth of God, and they worshiped and they served the Creator, who was blessed forever, rather than the creature. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to pure and to wholesome lives, lived with carefree ease, even in the most intimate relations, so that all received in their own persons the due reward of their fidelity. And just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them up to a sound mind to do those things which are proper, being filled with all righteousness and goodness, generosity, kindness, full of selflessness, life healing, full of openness and full of kindness. They are gentle in speech, always building up others. They're lovers of God. They're respectful. They're humble. They're self-effacing. They're inventors of good, obedient to parents. They're understanding. They're trustworthy. They're loving. They're merciful. 
And as they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are possessors of life, they do the same, and they give hearty approval to those who do likewise. Affirming God's design. Next, affirm my love for the gospel. Affirm my love for Jesus. I was really convicted um, this, this week as I came across this passage in a really good way, I think. Let me just read it. Verse 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11 is so great. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you. See, every single one of us fits into this list. Every one of us. Some of us still struggle, and it's good that we struggle with some of these things, but we struggle knowing that we're forgiven. We struggle knowing that God is, 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 is sanctifying us. He's making us holy as we, as we avail himself, ourselves to him and to his church body. And such of you were. And I, I love this because I hear and see street preachers and internet preachers that will sit back and they will, they will say every homosexual is a pedophile. They will speak of them as retrobate and there's no chance for them to come back to Christ. And they speak of them as in the most ungodly kind of ways. But they're, they're not reading the, the scriptures. The scriptures right here teach some of these were them. We all are broken people needing, needing forgiveness for our sin. Regardless of the degree of sin, regardless of the category of sin, we all need a Savior. And so affirm my love for the God. As I, as I face a culture that makes me mad and stuff that I can't seem to control or I don't know how to handle the tension, I just affirm my love for Jesus and the fact that um, before him I was no different than than anyone else that is really frustrating me now. Um, and then thirdly, I just say affirm my love for the lost. Affirm my love for the lost and commit to praying for them. We are called, and what an awesome opportunity we have to call, um, to call this place our home, to have an opportunity. And, and one of the nice things, one, one of the reasons why a lot of us live out here, I could say this true, even before I was at the church, I live out in the country because... Um, I worked in Northwest Portland for a lot of years, and it's just not my style. You know, I like to be out in the country. I like to kind of be, I just, I just like that. And, and, uh, and yet, um, we live in a world where we have an opportunity to, to reach with the gospel those who need the gospel, those who are far from Christ. Um, and the first way we do that is, is affirming our love for those that we struggle with probably the most. Um, and, and pray for them. Because, you know, you can't do anything by your anger towards the way culture is trending, nor can I. We can't do anything with our preaching or our trolling on the internet 
but we can do amazing things. We can put dry patches of ground around a Doppler radar that is dark green with our prayer. We can help a dad's leg heal quick. We can help a sister recover from a surgery. And we can, we can through our prayers, make the greatest impact on the world around us. Um, as we struggle with what to say and what to do. Um, I'll, I'll close, I'll make this quick. I want to close with um, just, just, just two stories where this really hits home for me. 27 years ago, I was a 17-year-old in high school. I served on a student leadership team with a bunch of other, a bunch of other um, kids. One of them was a real cute 15-year-old freshman sitting right there. She was dating my best friend at the time. Um, I, I took care of that, but anyhow. <laughs> after, after youth group, I was hanging out with one of my friends on this leadership team, and it was just the two of us. He was acting a little bit odd, and so I just basically said, what's up? What's going on? You're like, weird. What's going on? And I had to kind of pull some stuff out of him. I was just kind of, and then he all he said, I'll just tell you. He goes, Bill, I'm gay. I'm a 17-year-old kid, not the most mature. I'm a 44-year-old man, not the most mature. But, but as a 17-year-old kid, that kind of shocked me. I didn't know what to do. Oh, man. Um, a lot of things went through my mind. Are you telling me this because you think I'm cute? You like me? <laughs> I did ask him that, and he said no in an offended way which kind of hurt my feelings at that point. Um, there's a lot I could say here. I'll just say, I'll say this, and then I'll come back to this story after I tell you the next one. Um, 27 years later, uh, what he asked, he, I said, why are you telling me this? He said, I want your accountability. And I, I what do you mean? He goes, well, I don't feel comfortable letting people know this. Um, but I know... I know that this is not God's design. And I know that these same-sex attractions and these feelings that I have are not honoring to God. And I want to honor God with, with that. And so, um, anyway, 27 years later, fast forward, my friend, talked to him this week, talked to him all of the time. He now runs um, a ministry in Central Oregon um, that if, if you're interested, I'll, I'll pass on information uh, to you, but um, he, he runs a ministry that is available to anyone that has same-sex attraction that wants to choose to honor God with those feelings rather than to buy into a culture that just says, yeah, it's okay, do what feels good. He doesn't force his opinion. Their ministry isn't about that. They just are there to say, you know what? Your identity is not wrapped up in your sexuality. Who you are and who you choose to, to be um, attracted to doesn't relate to who you are as, as a creature of God made in his image. And we would like to just walk with you and, and, and share with you what it looks like to have your identity founded in Jesus rather than in uh, a sexual identity. Um, man, he's one of my heroes still single, still has same-sex attraction, although it's lessened. But he's resigned himself to serve God with celibacy.
his whole life because he knows that's God's plan. It's pretty foreign today. Okay, so anyway, um, that was then and today. Now, re- reverse back about 15 years ago. I'm a youth pastor. Uh, no, 10 years ago. I'm a youth pastor, and um, at this friend is having a banquet dinner where he's inviting, um, he, it's, a, it's a fundraising dinner for his ministry. They do this once a year. It's a big deal. They run out this like, convention center. He asked me to come and to be the keynote speaker. That was just a real honor. And um, so I say to my wife, I'm like, honey, let's, let's go down. Let's like, make this a date. We'll go down, stay the night, and it'll be fun. And um, she kind of did that thing that she'll do every once in a while, that she's, not unco- she's uncomfortable with something. And she ended up coming to me, and she just said, I don't feel like God wants me to go. Well, I wanted her to go. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> let's go. Anyway, um, she ended up not going. Um, being obedient to the Lord's directing, which didn't make any sense to either of us at that time. So I invited with me um, a, a, a student intern. We just had brought this student intern on. He'd come to know Christ at one of our previous camps. And um, he hangs out with me. We go down, um, do the event. It was great. We get in the car and we're, we're coming back home. We got about a two and a half hour drive. And as, as we're going, you know, I probably was fishing for a compliment, but I just basically say, what'd you think? How'd it go? And, and, um, he says, and I'll never forget it. He says, that's me. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what do you mean? What, what do you mean that's you? Explain. And I'm thinking, I, he doesn't mean what I think he means, right? He goes, yeah, that's me. That's me. Um, I struggle with same-sex attraction. And I'm thinking, again, again, I'm older at this point, but my mind's still really like, ah, he's a student intern. How did I not see this? You'd think I'd learn this, you know, that whole thing. And um, I'm like, okay, Lord, like, whoa, what, what, what do we do here? And so, anyway, um, we'll, we'll, we'll um, on this car ride, um, he, he educates me. And um, I'm not, well, let me just say what he told me. He, he basically, as he shared his story with me, he's now, uh, at this time, an 18-year-old young man. But he was born to a set of parents that were still married, um, but they were um, surprised by their first child when, when mom was in her late 40s and dad was in his late 50s. Um, mom is a, was, she's passed, was a um, raging alcoholic. Dad was a wonderful guy, but now as a newborn, when he's thinking he's going to retirement, he's back to work full time, not around much. So uh, my intern basically says to me, he's like, so when I would come home from school as a 10-year-old boy, I would find my mom in one of two conditions. She would either be passed out in a pool of her own vomit or she would be up waiting to beat on me. And so my preference was, he says, to come home and find her in the condition in which she's passed out in her own vomit. That's what I wanted to. And if she was awake, I wouldn't go home. I would just wait until she was in that other state, which normally wasn't too long. So I would go to the park. And as I went to the park this one time as a 10-year-old boy, he's telling me this, obviously, many years, eight years after. He says there was a pedophile there. And I went there and was sexually abused by this older, older man. And he goes, I know this sounds really backwards, but it was the first time I really felt loved. In my, and, I, and as a 10-year-old, I knew I was being abused. 
I knew that this was wrong. I knew that this felt good. Um, and it was better than being at home. So, not saying, I, I, I say that, say that, share the story for a, a few different reasons. Um, in both of these cases, and for both of these cases, they're not indicative of every case of, of those who struggle with same-sex attraction. I'll say that for sure. But in many cases that are, those that struggle have a story. Um, and those that struggle in many cases have had a situation like both of them who were abused as younger, as younger adolescents. When, when a child is supposed to be nurtured in the, the care of two loving parents, uh, that care enough to, to, to train them up in a loving, nurturing way, in the ways of the Lord. Instead, they find themselves in an abusive state. And it, it definitely forms the way they view the world and the way that they see their identity. And there's a lot of psychology that I'm sure goes into that. I say all of this simply because we can sit back and we can look at an issue and forget these are real people with real stories that have not been exposed to the love in which God designed them to be nurtured in because of depravity of our world, because of the trending of the culture, because the culture has suppressed truth. We have young kids today, and it's happening more and more and more, young kids who are being raised by a culture that has defined itself in suppression. And so I hate to say it, I mean, we, we, we read the end of the story, we know how things are going to continue to trend, but as followers of Jesus, we make it our ultimate aim to take the loving, nurturing design of God found in many ways, but most importantly in the ways of the gospel to a world that needs to know what it means to be loved deeply by someone. That's what, that's what this world needs. And how great is it that we get that mission? How great is it? Not that we're perfect, not that we are know-it-alls, we're not. We just simply know. We just simply know that we are loved by uh, a God who created us in such a way to to, to, to live, and then also to embrace a mission, to, to love a world around us. So, um, it's a good thing. I think many of us, and actually I'll just say statistically speaking, there are a number of people in this room, in the overflow room, that, that struggle with this issue. It's just natural. Uh, it's, 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 it's statistically the case. Um, and what's, what's glorious about that is, is one, that you don't have to, you don't have to um, suppress this to the point where there's not others that will, will walk with you and love you in that. And, and I just say that just to say you need brothers and sisters to come alongside you and you need to have the courage like my friend did in, when he was you know, 27 years ago and, and seek love and support rather than to suppress and to hide behind that. Um, I don't know, all this to say, uh, all this to say, what a great opportunity that, that we have. What a great opportunity we have to, to love the, the Lord and to love people. Because Jesus said it, 
And I say it almost every week, I'll just say it again. When you live in this tension, when you live in this culture that, that, um, that seems to be so anti what you're about, and yet um, you want to be mad at it rather than, than love it, we have to remember Jesus' words in Matthew 22 when he, when he said, he says, what is the most important thing? Love God with your whole heart and love your neighbor as yourself. You don't have to affirm their, their ways. They live from a different set of rules, but love them, love them. Quote I have at the bottom of your notes page, tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. We know that this world is not going to treat us well, but it's because they live from a different set of beliefs than we do. It doesn't mean that their misappropriation of their beliefs towards us will affect the way that we carry out the love that God has put in our hearts for them and yet still upholding the truth. All right. Um, whew, you guys did great. Good job. Um, someone said that last week was our, our largest attendance of, church, of our church's history. Next week, it probably won't be that high. Um, I hope that's not truly the case. Um, but, but still, thank you for, for being sensitive. I know that many of us in this congregation have family. We almost all have family members and friends that walk in this and... Um, um, love them well. Love them well. Please love them well. Um, all right, let's pray. Um, worship team, you can come up.